Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kevin, and for the past six months, I've had the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Covenant Life. I'm one of our lay elders, which means um, I have a full-time job throughout the week in marketing. And I sometimes look back on just several years of God's goodness through this local church, this family. I could share story after story of the many ways that God has cared for me well over the years. Um, So I'm thankful to this church and to open up our new series today. So our new series today is on CLC's mission. Though our regular diet is to walk through books of the Bible, bouncing back from the Old Testament and the New, now and then we take time to go through a topical series to serve us in our life together. We're calling this series Our Mission, Who We Are. And if you were here a while ago, you might remember that we've already walked through a series on our mission about a year ago or so. I promise that no one made a mistake when they uh, wrote the preaching calendar this year. There's actually good reasons why we would take time to, to study our mission today again. Though we never set out to forget what we've learned, we are a forgetful people, and we need constant reminding. In God's kind providence, we planned this also before a global pandemic hit. And after months without fully gathering as a church, we get this time together to remember how our mission is never something that goes on pause. We wanna be careful not to become consumers who are always asking, what's in it for me? No, instead of consumers, we wanna be culture shapers who are asking, how can I benefit the good of the whole? We don't just think our mission is a nice catchphrase, but it says who we are and how we live. If our church is known for anything, we want it to be three things. Delight, live, and work. We exist to display God's glory by making disciples who delight in God, live together in gospel-centered community, and work for the gospel renewal of Tampa Bay and the nations. So over the next three weeks, we'll walk through this mission statement Um, in three different sermons to see how our lives are to be marked uh, first today by a delight in God. And then next week, we'll look at living together in gospel-centered community, and the week after that, working for gospel renewal in Tampa Bay and the nations. So to keep this mission central, we need more than our best efforts. We need the Holy Spirit's help. So I'd like to call on his help now to help us be both doers of the word and receivers of what it says. God, if we ever hope to be united around this great call, to find ourselves wrapped up and captivated by you, we need more than good ideas. We need your spirit to give us eyes to see and hearts to hear. So we ask your spirit to do what only he can. Grow us, shape us, make us men and women who delight in you, that Christ would get the glory 
In his matchless name, amen. What stands in the way of your worship? Maybe you know life is intended for worshiping God, but perhaps you feel too busy. Have other things left you feeling preoccupied? Do you feel that your filth disqualifies you? Is God boring to you? Maybe when things were good, you sang God's praises. You delighted in him. But now as problems start to pile up, you start to question, does God really deserve your deepest affection? Our worship condition runs deep. One biblical counselor says we have a worship disorder. It's not like we've forgotten how, because each of us is hardwired for it. But our worship is misdirected. We often look to other things to find our highest delight. It's as though our hearts are aimed in the wrong direction. We forget that when we let other things rule our lives, they'll one day ruin our lives. So what do we do? Well, I invite you now to open your Bibles to Psalm 100. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just let us know how we can get you a copy of God's word. That would be our joy. Our passage today is Psalm 100, and you might have noticed as it was read that it's a brief one, only five verses, but don't think that its size suggests it's thin on meaning. There's plenty to unpack in these verses to help us return worship to its right place. A few years back, we spent several months walking through the first book or section of the Psalms, and back then, we often said that the Psalms give the full range of human emotions. They teach, instruct, and give expression to color our darkest sadnesses and our brightest joys. Martin Luther called this book the Bible in miniature because it often retells God's redemptive story over and over through poetic language and even song. In our passage today, we will see how God is the source of true delight. That's our main idea, that God is our source of true delight. And as we walk through our passage verse by verse, we're gonna see this in four different ways. Our first point, we will see how delight in God is expressed by praise. Delight in God expressed by praise. We see this in verses one and two. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. The people of God are marked by the praise of God. If you think sometimes that praise is a music genre, just see how multidimensional it's described here. There's a threefold call to praise through shouts, service, and singing. Shouting, service, and singing are all appropriate and natural ways that we would praise our good God. We immediately see praise through shouting. Some verses would also say, make a joyful noise. If you enter a room shouting, though, you might get a few dirty looks, so I don't recommend that you try it today. 
But when scripture speaks of shouting, it's usually in response to God's greatness. In some passages, shouting is linked to battle cries after a victory. Earlier, we sang words from Psalm 98. In Psalm 98, verses four through six, repeat the words from this verse, all to demonstrate how shouting is delivered. Psalm 98, six says, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord, the king, the Lord. So it's the king's presence that invokes the people's praise. You might ask, why would people shout for a king? It's not something that you do for an evil dictator, but in these times, it was the appropriate response to greet a king this way. If you've ever seen a coronation service, the king will get the crown, and the people don't just stand by, bored, or out of obligation to be there. No, they erupt in applause. There's trumpets. You see, they see that the king, his arrival earns not a quiet whisper, but a loud shout of applause. We also see the language, all the earth, means this loud declaration isn't only for the nation of Israel. It points to God's covenantal promises of salvation being available to all. By reading this, we remember the barrier between Jew and Gentile is no more. We look back and see how Christ invites every tribe and tongue from every corner of the world to celebrate the king's coming. Our praises look to a day when all nations will bow down and celebrate the rule and reign of Christ, our king. After giving shouts of praise, we see the next imperative move to praise through service. Serving the Lord with gladness covers more, here we see, than just the things that we say. Here we see that praising God involves what we do, how God earns not only the speech of our lips, but he earns the glad service of our hearts, of our actions. We often talk about giving our time and energy as though it were a sacrifice to make, but these verses would also remind us of the motives behind our service. We do it gladly as an overflow of praise. Our service shouldn't be like drudgery, but done willingly, joyfully. Shouting praises to God also means little if it fails to match the rest of our lives. Service is less like a funeral and more like a celebration. Let's think about this. So if you get the call and someone uh, is asking you to help move, do you respond right away? Is there kind of a, a tug at your heart to maybe say no? Or maybe you do say yes, even on a hot afternoon in July, but the whole time you're walking up the stairs with the couch, with the TV, you're thinking of all the other better things you could do with your time. If this is how we serve, it's not truly serving because our motives mean everything. And if we're only consumed with making ourselves happy, our actions become self-service. Verse two doesn't tell us to serve the Lord with gladness because there's something glamorous about it. No, it becomes heartfelt praise only when we remember the ultimate recipient of it. God is the one who receives our service. Looking high to him should encourage us to go low. We see the covenant name, the Lord or Yahweh is used here. And this would cause the original audience to think of God's character and his close relationship with his servants. 
First Peter 4, 11, likewise says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. After praising through shouts and service, the psalm now moves to praise through singing. To come before him with joyful singing means God is not listening from out in the distance. No, it's in his presence that we sing. This call to sing joyfully is seen throughout the songbook of the Bible. There were psalms that were recorded with musical accompaniment or instruments in mind. We're told to sing and make melodies to the Lord and for everything with breath to praise him. Altogether, we see over 400 references to singing in the Bible. That means about every three chapters, we see the saints singing. Exodus 15 will put the crossing of the Red Sea to song. And Deuteronomy 32 will show Moses, after defeating the Egyptians, singing. And in Luke 1, Mary shows us the way to celebrate the coming Messiah. It's by singing and making melodies to the Lord. Music is the church's universal language, and it served the saints throughout our history. In times when people couldn't ring, read, they could learn to sing truths about God's word. Or if the masses couldn't get their hands on a copy of the Bible, they could be taught to rehearse scripture through music. Carrying a tune has never been a requirement. Even the musically disadvantaged have a role to play in the church as we sing. Each week, the men and women on our music team have a huge responsibility as they're preparing to join, for us to join the choir of Revelation when we sing to the Lamb who is worthy. In a similar way, I think about our deacons who have a role to play to teach us, train us how to make a sacrifice of praise. No matter what gifts you have, no matter how you praise, there's no shortage of ways to help others tune their hearts to sing to the Lord. So however you do it, press on when it's hard. Press on when it's inconvenient. You're serving your fellow members, but ultimately the praises that we give are reserved for someone greater, the king. In our second point, we see delight in God grounded in knowledge. Delight in God grounded in knowledge. We see this in verse three. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The worship that we give is never like a mindless exercise. There's always a direct connection between knowing God that will lead us to praise him and to delight in him. Our delight comes through truly acknowledging who God is, where praise becomes the logical result. And if we fail to know God well, our praise lacks substance or is artificial. Since our hearts are always worshiping something, failing to know and understand who God is will lead us looking elsewhere to fill in the void. In Acts 17, Paul enters the city of Athens, and on his way into the city, it says in Acts 17, 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed the city full of idols. Paul looks around, he sees worship on every corner, but the worship is misguided and not directed to God. It makes him uncomfortable and it provokes him. In verse 22, he addresses these men of Athens 
who are bowing to idols. And he says, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Paul tells those who think they're religious that they've neglected the true God. By delighting in the unseen, it's blindfolded them from reality. In verse 29, he'll go on to say, to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by man. He calls them to stop bowing to other things, to return worship to the one who is holy, set apart, and different. I think this is a lesson that you and I need to always be relearning. Each time we catch our hearts turning to something other than God, it should prompt us. Only God fulfills. We turn back. We don't have to guess what God is like or worship him in the dark because he's revealed himself so clearly in his word and through Christ. We spend our life studying and acknowledging God, not because we like gaining academic knowledge, but because study informs our delight. One author said, Scripture provides the doctrinal fuel to our emotional fire. So when our minds become captivated with who God is, our delight becomes something not superficial but authentic. You might say what's true about God informs what we do about God. Our theology flows into our doxology. If you read our church's statement of faith, you'll see it's grounded in God's authoritative word. And by uniting around these truths, we ensure our beliefs and our delight match what's in our Bibles. And what is declared, proclaimed in the pulpit and in the pew is important, right? We all have a role to play to ensure that our knowledge and delight is based on truth. In addition to delighting in who God is, we also delight in his ownership. We see the text now move from the center out saying, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. We aren't just atoms collected at random, but created beings are subject to our creator. God's ownership in verse three extends from his creative work to show his redemptive work in joining together a people. Those in Christ celebrate knowing God as their creator and redeemer. We've been twice claimed by God. This is not an oppressive type of ownership. God doesn't steal us away from who we truly are. No, he rescues us, he restores us and reshapes us so that we can live according to our true design. Another truth our Bibles show us which can be a source of delight is the corporate nature of redemption. God's business of redeeming individuals is greater than our personal salvation stories. It's a redemptive work that is collective and corporate. If you just look at the plural pronouns here, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people. And then we see the common language of shepherding and sheep. So maybe this image of being a sheep in a flock is offensive to you. And I think as we go through life, the more we become educated, the more we become self-motivated, the more these truths need to become closer to our, our hearts, more dear to us. Like sheep, we aren't always known for our intellect. We're awfully stubborn and noisy and smell atrocious in our sin. 
We wander off without warning when other, other things entice us. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the title of shepherd was also given to kings, and this suggested a king wasn't only a sovereign ruler, but intended to be up close and on watch. Places like Psalm 23 remind us of the beautiful reality of the shepherd we need. Weary souls needing rest can lie down in green pastures. When our lives turn chaotic, there's someone to lead us beside still waters. When we worry about unmet needs, he sets a table before us. He feeds, restores, forgives, comforts, anoints. He brings us back to safety. He guides us into paths of righteousness. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, there's a good shepherd who's willing to leave the 99 in search of the one. He came for the lost sheep of Israel seeking to save those who wandered. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, this shepherd would lay down his life for his sheep. And as an extended part of his care, he would place us in flocks surrounded by fences. Being part of a family means we don't have to go at it alone. Our delight can become a community project. So if you ever buy into the lie of autonomy or self-sufficiency, or maybe this year has brought about feelings of isolation, take time to study and reflect on the good shepherd's design for our souls. Our life together was never meant to be an optional add-on to the Christian life. We were created for it. There's no way you and I can sing we are his people and the sheep of his pasture as a solo act. We need each other. And as another extension of the shepherd's love, he would give us under shepherds, also called elders or pastors. You're not gonna find perfect men sufficient in themselves, but in God's wisdom, he gives churches authority to appoint biblically qualified men to equip the saints for the work of ministry. By submitting and entrusting yourself to your elders who are called to exercise oversight, you're entrusting yourself to the good shepherd's design for your soul. And this is a knowledge that we can delight in. Now we turn to our third point, which is delight in God enabled by our access. Delight in God enabled by our access. We see this in verses, verse four. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. We see the verse begin with worshipers who are thankful, and we're gonna look at this in more detail in our next point. But right now, let's pay attention to the access that God gives in this verse. Verse four, we'll use temple imagery to describe this access. If you've ever looked at a depiction of Solomon's temple, you'll know that this temple was the most massive place in Jerusalem. This symbol for where God lives and dwells was surrounded by gates. Inside those gates, you'd find colonnades and chambers. And then further in, you'd see the temple courts, right? Well, God's people could enter the gates to worship, but they were only permitted to the outer court. It was the priests alone who could enter the inner court. And in the center of that place was the closed-off holy of holies. You would have to be the designated high priest, and you could only enter here annually, 
once a year to make sacrifices for the people. The progression in this verse points to implications Israel could only dream of. All week long, I've been affected, impacted by this reality. As we enter the gates with thankful hearts, it's like we're just warming up for worship. And then we find ourselves praising God in his very courts with more excitement still. But it doesn't end there, church. Soon God would invite us to sing in his very presence. But this is scandalous, right? How could a dirty sinner like you or like me be welcomed into the company of the Holy One? Our best effort, our greatest sacrifice would never qualify us to be there. As enemies estranged and hostile to God, we have no right to be in his presence. Our sin against this God would deserve his wrath, right? His punishment and eternity spent in a little place called hell. Though God created us to enjoy him, we've all sung our hearts out in praise of other things. Like our first parents in the garden, we've doubted God. We've looked for love in all the wrong places. And in doing so, we've been penalized from enjoying this sweet presence. Where could our hope be? Then God the Father sends Christ the Son. God comes to earth, takes on flesh, and the greatest worshiper who's ever lived is beaten, mocked, spit upon, and crucified. The spotless one would die a gruesome death on a cross. Do you see how praiseworthy this is? Outside the gates, outside the city temple, there's a hill called Calvary, overlooked, where only the worst criminals are executed. Outside this gate, Jesus would yield up his spirit. And you know what happens? The tall curtain forbidding entrance into the most holy places, torn, top to bottom. Our high priest makes his sacrifice, and now sinful people like you and like me, we can run right up to the center of God's holy dwelling. Our faith in this crucified, resurrected lamb who called out, it is finished, grants us access so we can come right in. The presence of God becomes our home. Now his presence is our delight. Through Christ's once for all sacrifice and his resurrection and by his spirit, we're no longer cut off from God, but we can be restored back to him. We can be made able to enjoy him again. The veil in the temple was torn. They bury his body. And in the world's most praiseworthy moment, the ground can't keep him. Jesus made a promise in John 2 that the temple of his body would be destroyed and raised up in three days, showing that God's wrath was fully exhausted. And now as 1 Corinthians 6 says, our bodies become new temples where God's Holy Spirit dwells. Brothers and sisters, if you're weak on praise or unthankful, remember this great access you have. The God of the universe took the greatest link so you could have total nearness to him no longer far off, but able to surround yourself with him on the daily. God invites you to worship him up close. 
Christ gives us an all-access pass, a year-round ticket. There's no such thing as standing room only in the theater of the Lord. In the age of social distancing, God wants you to be up close with him. But what if you blew it this week? Stake your claim then on Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. We see, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12 would then say, we have a high priest, not who offered his sacrifice of goats and calves, but one who gave his very blood. James 4.8 says, your advocate intercedes, making it possible to draw near to his throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 reminds those low on confidence, they have mercy and grace in times of need. John 6.37 says, he won't cast you out. Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 12 calls us, reminds us that we are part of Christ's body. We can't get any closer than that. Tim Keller says the only person who's qualified to wake up a king at 3 a.m. is the king's child. That's who we are, church. We have this advantage as God's adopted children. And unlike a sinful father, God is never inconvenienced by the children he loves. We have this access to him. The end of verse four shows we respond by blessing God. This certainly doesn't mean that we offer God something that he lacks. No, we agree and declare his worth among the saints. We ascribe to God the glory that he's due. In Psalm 116, 12, David will ask, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And in verse 13, he'll say, I shall lift up the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Our response is to return gratitude. We can call on God's name and offer our sacrifice of thanksgiving. And this leads us to our final point. Delight in God, expressed through gratitude. Delight in God, expressed through gratitude. And we will see this in the fifth and final verse. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. At the top of the psalm, you'll also see an inscription that says a psalm of thanksgiving or of giving thanks. Your translation might also say a thank offering. And whenever psalms are categorized excuse me, in different types, you'll often see this one included in a list of psalms of thanksgiving. I realize that sometimes thanksgiving calls to mind turkey, stuffing, pumpkin spice, Pringles, Twinkies, and a host of other things. But you'll be happy to know the idea conveyed here by thanksgiving means more than sentimental thoughts for once a year. This psalm really throughout expresses gratitude the whole time. And in verse five, we see gratitude for God's character and his care. We often talk about sins like hatred of others and sexual immorality and acts of anger. 
But what about when we lack gratitude? Holding back thanks can lead to all sorts of evil. I think sometimes we hold to a sliding scale of how we're thankful. When things go our way, we offer up prayers of thanksgiving to God. And then as our lives begin to drop below average, our gratitude starts to go with it. And then what about when expectations go unmet? Like our family member gets ill, or we lose the job? Do we only turn to God with our complaints? Philippians 4, 6 will remind us in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. We often forget in this verse when Paul says to bring petitions and requests to the Lord, he says to make them with thanksgiving. If our prayers neglect this aspect, this gratitude, perhaps they'll become nothing more than wish lists of how God can serve us. We're not told to thank God as a mandatory rule to weigh us down. No, thankfulness is not an attitude to manufacture, but it's a heartfelt response to God's character and his works. Perhaps you've noticed the psalmist has kept the spotlight on God the entire time. And these worshipers are keeping a fixed focus on him. In this verse, they again recognize God is the focal point for the whole world throughout all time. The enjoyment of God's presence in verse four has led to the enjoyment of his character in verse five. When we delight in God, we can't stop looking at him. We can't forget his character. And the longer we look, the more thankful we become. By declaring God is good, we declare he embodies all goodness. You see how these worshipers don't pass on the invitation to call him by name? They use this covenantal language again a third time, expressing reverence and remembering the access they have. The verse moves from thanking God for who he is to reflect on his love. His loving kindness is described as everlasting, not waning, but enduring forever. He's a God who's resolved to never stop loving. In Psalm 136, Israel's story is recounted with the words repeated over and over again. His love endures forever. It's a covenant-keeping love with no expiration on it. It goes as far back and as far forward as time will go. And his faithfulness lasts through all ages. It goes up and never comes down. Psalm 108.4 says, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. John Flavel said, A thankful person must be an observer of the mercies he has received. One thing that he and other Puritans practiced was marking their calendars with important dates. And when God would come through in a visible way, they'd make note of it. And then when August 23rd came around on the calendar they give back thanks for how God answered that prayer. What a good habit for you and I to put in practice. By recording his mercies, we can remember how good God's been. A few weeks back, I went digging through an old book on family history. It walks through the story of the Wilder family back to the 15th century. It's probably not a fascinating read for many people, but it was a 
good use of my time. I loved learning about my ancestors, and I realized how much I really didn't know about them. I think Psalm 100 is pointing us to a similar thing, to not just be present or future-oriented, but to always look back, to widen our perspective, to see how the same God who was faithful to our spiritual ancestors is faithful to us today. So if you're the type who flips through your Bible wondering, who are all these prophets? Who are all these kings? If the pages of genealogies are stuck together in your Bible, refamiliarize yourself with your spiritual ancestors. Take time to study them. You'll see the God who tarried with Israel is eternally good to every generation. We also see when we study these people how God's promises to Adam and Moses and Abraham, they all find their yes and amen in who? Jesus Christ. Well, maybe while reading through this psalm, you thought it seems out of touch with the harsh realities of a fallen world. Maybe you feel stuck in the lowest valley today and it's difficult to cling to God's promises of goodness and loving kindness and faithfulness. Well, then how do you, along with Psalm 121, direct your eyes up to the God who never sleeps from where your help comes from? Sometimes things turn from bad to worse. Or God withholds certain blessings from us. Or prayers for a spouse seem to lead nowhere. Or our child shows no sign of repenting. In these times, we must call on the Spirit to come to our aid and to show us how to maintain a posture of gratitude. Hebrews 12, 2 says, we keep our eyes fixed on Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus, we have a wellspring of joy, even in the worst of sorrow. Christ is the perfect example of how to hold these two things, joy and sorrow, in tandem. Hebrews 4.15 shows he wasn't immune to pain, but he was tempted just like we are, yet he remained sinless. Christ the Son kept an eternal perspective, even when it meant the worst. Hebrews 12, 2 continues, it's for the joy set before him that Christ would endure the cross, despising the shame. We see Jesus, his whole life was fueled by praise. How do we see this? Well, in Matthew 20, the king of kings will put on a towel, he'll fill a wash basin, and he'll proceed to wash dirty, nasty feet. He doesn't do this for the deserving. No, it's self-serving sinners who were not long ago fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. In Luke 22, he knows death is on the horizon, and yet he leads these men in taking the supper. As he shares the bread and the cup, the symbol of his body and blood, he even stops twice to give thanks. In John 15, he calls the disciples who will desert him, his friends, and after explaining how thee, they as sheep will scatter, Matthew 26 records Jesus doing what? He stops to burst into song. He leads the disciples in singing a hymn just hours before the cross. Can you imagine listening to Christ sing, awaiting his death? One day we don't have to know 
We don't have to. We'll know what that's like, church. We can hear Christ singing. We could sing with him. Jesus shows how in our darkest days, we can learn to lift our eyes in praise. Our serving, singing, suffering, and now resurrected Lord is the living solution to our worship problem. Through his example and with the Spirit's help, we can learn to praise God even when it's the last thing we want to do. So I wanted to ask Covenant Life Church, what will we be known for? Is it our hobbies and our interests? Is it the building we meet in or what's in our bank accounts? Let's be known as people who delight in God. People who, by the Spirit, are restoring worship back in the right direction. Through our access and with thankful hearts, we can sing together. We can help one another remember where praise is due. And as we seek to make more disciples, let's ensure we're making ones who find their souls wrapped up, satisfied in our gracious God. Let's pray. Father, Father,